staggering, incredible events happened around the cross. And that probably shouldn't surprise us because the cross is such a significant work. I'm going to call it the second most important thing that ever happened in history. And the only reason I say the second is because three days later there is the resurrection. And if you don't have the resurrection, the death of Jesus means nothing. But with the resurrection, now we have the, his death at which the Old Testament had spoken of in detail that he was going to die for the sins of mankind, for our iniquity, that he was going to ransom, redeem, which means to purchase. He was, going to, he was going to purchase us by paying the price for our lives by dying on the cross. It is an incredibly significant moment that Jesus came as the Messiah to do that specific work. He certainly showed us the glory of the Father. He showed us how we are to live. He gave us the great teachings, the best teacher who ever lived, the most impact of anybody, the most impact anybody ever had on the earth at all is Jesus. And today we will look at the seven things that happened around the cross and their significance and what they mean to us. Let me give you what those seven things are. There was a supernatural darkness from noon until three. Jesus was crucified at nine. He hung on the cross for six hours. And at noon, there was this darkness and it lasted until he died at three o'clock. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. We'll talk about what that veil is, where it was, what it represented and why it was torn when Jesus died. There was an earthquake that happened. Graves were opened, which is very significant. Saints were seen, so saints that had died were seen in Jerusalem. And I don't think they were zombies. I, I don't think that they you know, had skin hanging off. And, uh, I, I think that God had given them some kind of a temporary body. We'll talk about why that, what, what kind of a problem that, that arises out of that here in a few minutes. Scriptures were fulfilled. So many scriptures were fulfilled at the death crucifixion, really the trials, all of this time frame and the resurrection, so many were fulfilled that I started to list them in my notes and I was going to cover. And, and finally, I went, you know what? There's too many of them. And we've been listing them over the last few weeks anyway. So I will make reference to uh, six or seven of the, the scriptures that were fulfilled. These are not prophecies that were fulfilled, but scriptures in the Old Testament that pointed to what would happen to him on the cross. A couple of them will be prophecies, but basically those things there. Um, and finally, there was surprising statements at the cross. There were a couple of things said by people that you wouldn't expect them to say it that are pretty amazing. So let's read the text. We've read this for the last two weeks, but let's read it again. And it, right away, it begins to get into the things that happened around the cross. It says in verse 44, now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Now, Look at that here, because we're going to read another, we're going to read Matthew's account of it, which says something slightly different. This is the centurion who says this. 
And what he says is certainly this was a righteous man and the satyrian glorified God. This is a Roman centurion that was in charge of crucifying people. These events and the way Jesus died caused this centurion to actually glorify God and to make a statement that an innocent man had been crucified. And then it says, and the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. This crowd that had mocked Jesus saw the darkness, saw the earthquake, saw him die, and then beat their breast and left. Finally, verse 49, but all of his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So we're going to start where our text starts with the supernatural darkness that this happened at noon and lasted for three hours. The first suggestion is that it was an eclipse, but you cannot have an eclipse the full moon. Passover is always on a full moon. Now, last week I had said, I don't know why you can't have an eclipse with a full moon because I'm not an astronomer. I don't, an astronomer, I'm not, well, anyway, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, but I took time to look it up, which took me about five minutes, by the way, maybe even less of why you can't have an eclipse with a full moon. It's because the moon's on one side of the earth doing its thing and the sun's on the other side of the earth doing its thing during a full moon. And the moon can't get in between us and the, the earth and the sun to have its shadow fall on the earth. So it's pretty simple to understand why you can't. Plus, an, e an eclipse of the sun only lasts a little over seven minutes if you're in the very heart of it. You have to be right in the heart of it for it to last seven minutes. This is three-hour darkness. So this is a supernatural darkness that happened. Now, it was foretold in the Old Testament. There's Psalm 22, which is a, a prophecy by David. David wrote Psalm 22, and he prophesies of Jesus on the cross. It starts off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, they pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are out of joint. My tongue clings to my jaw. Uh, and then it says, they divided his garments and for his, his, they divided his clothing and for his garment they cast lots. We're told in the New Testament that they came to his garment and there were no seams, so they couldn't divide the material. So they just gambled for it. And that was actually foretold. Now this is, this is that chapter. We're talking all about Jesus. And here's what it says in verse two. My, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. So while he hung there on the cross, darkness covered the earth. Now, there, are, there, were, there was a historian who wrote about darkness that took place during the time that Jesus was on the cross. This is external evidence from the scriptures that this darkness actually happened. Uh, we don't need that. I, I don't need that to happen, but I always think it's neat when we find external evidence to the Bible. We, we've learned there's enough evidence out there to support what the Bible says. And whenever you hear somebody say, well, that didn't happen in the Bible because we have no evidence of it, you can be sure that something will be found that will prove them wrong. It's happened over and over again. In the 37 years that I've been pastoring, I've seen it happen so many times. 
I remember reading that King David was a myth, that there was no evidence for him until they found in Tel Dan a stone that was in one of the walls there that referenced the house of David that dated to 900 years before Christ. And uh, that's 100 years after the death of David. And suddenly they were like, well, I guess he was a historical person. So we don't need this evidence, but it's always neat that it's there. So there was a historian named Thallus who wrote a history of the Eastern Mediterranean. He wrote in AD 52 about the supernatural darkness that happened 20 years before that. So this is very, very early. Now we don't have any of his writings. They have been lost in time. So how do we know that he wrote it then? Because other ancient historians made comments about Thallus's writings. This is not uncommon. The critic will go, well, you can't count that because we don't have his original writings. But scholars know that you often have evidence of writings by the commentaries other writers wrote about that commentary. This is not uncommon and it is generally accepted. So he wrote about it. Thallus said it was an eclipse and in 137, Philegion, I think it's how you say his name, Philegion, a Greek historian, wrote in 137 that it could not be an eclipse for the same reason we talked about it, that it had to be something else that Thallius was writing about because it was not an eclipse. There was also Julius Africanus who had referenced these other two writers and he made comments about what he thought the supernatural darkness was. He was a Christian and he gave his commentary on those things. As I said again, we don't need it, but we do have this external evidence that there was a supernatural darkness that happened in the middle of the day. Also, there are several places, other places in the Bible where you find darkness. You find it when the children of Israel are being delivered from Egypt by the mighty hand of God and the Egyptians are plunged into a darkness. Now, why did this happen? Why did God bring this darkness while Jesus was hanging on, to the, on the cross? I think it has to do with Jesus dying for us. He died in our place so we could be forgiven. He had never sinned, an innocent man dying. The Old Testament had said this in several places, that he was ransoming us, he was purchasing us, he had died for our iniquity. We also know he was beaten for our peace. His peace was taken from him all that night and that day to be crucified so you and I could have peace in circumstances where we shouldn't have peace. He carried our sorrow and our grief, the Bible says, by his stripes were healed. So he was even scourged for us. And I think the fact that we have come from darkness into light, God brought him into darkness on the cross for three hours. Listen to what the Bible says here in Acts 26, 18. To open their eyes, Paul's talking about what God had sent him to do. He says to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. That's, that's Paul's call. That's really our call too. We are witnesses for Christ to bring them out of darkness and into light from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And that's Jesus, that faith in, in Christ. We are sanctified by that. In John 18, 12, Jesus said this, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I 
am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So this darkness Jesus was in was symbolic that by his death on the cross, he was bringing us into the light. The second thing that happened was that the veil in the temple was torn in two. Now, if you don't know the way that the temple is set up, first of all, you need to know that Hebrews tells us that it is a type of heaven. Everything in the temple speaks of things that are in heaven. And when you do a study of the temple from the Old Testament or from the book of Hebrews, it really is fascinating. As an example, the incense burner that sat right in front of the veil in the holy place, the, the uh, actual building of the temple was about 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. Uh, there, the first part was the holy place that had the candelabra, which spoke of the Holy Spirit, had the table of showbread, which spoke about God's provision for us that comes from the throne. And it had an incense burner in front of it that represented the prayers of the saints. So when you walked into the temple, it was full of this incense and our prayers are, are like incense burning in heaven. They are before God. And, and we'll see that in our study of the book of Revelation, that it actually speaks of the prayers of the saints being represented as incense. So we see that. Now, the back half or the back third of it was called the Holy of Holies. It is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And it's where God, before the glory of the Lord had left uh, Jerusalem under, in Ezekiel's time, left the temple and Jerusalem in Ezekiel's time, the glory of the Lord would appear in a cloud over the Ark of the Covenant. The same one that Indiana Jones was looking for. Okay? <laughs> Which now is missing, right? No one knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. But it was behind a veil. And in the Old Testament, they were told only one man could go behind that veil. And that's the high priest. And he cannot go without blood because if he goes without blood, he'll die. So he's going to enter into the, what is, represents the presence of God, that glory that was over the tabernacle. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, which was the top, the lid of the tabernacle was called, excuse me, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. So he had to have blood with him, which of course represented the blood of Jesus in order to access the presence of God. So he had to go through a veil to get to God. So when the veil was torn from top to bottom, it represents that access has now been made by Christ on the cross to God. We were separated from him. And I want to show you that Jesus becomes our veil. That veil spoke of Christ. And, and now we have access through a living veil, and that is Jesus. Now, a couple of passages. First of all, I want to read why there's a separation between us and God. Why are we separated from him? You might be a good person. And um, it's always interesting when, when someone will say, well, you're a good person. Uh, somebody else will say, Bible says no one's good but God. However, the Bible does say that Joseph of Arimathea was a good man. The Bible says that Job was a righteous man. So by human standards, people can be good. And by human standards, people can be horrible, monsters, right? But there can be good people by human standards. But God is so good that we all fall short of him and his glory. The Bible says in God is no shifting of any shadow. 
He's so brilliant, so perfect, so full of light, there's not even any flickering or shadows in it. And I like to say, man, we're like all darkness and God is all light and he is gonna bring light into our lives. But listen to what Isaiah 59, one and two says about the separation from God. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, nor is ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that you will not hear. And that's why in the Old Testament, you gave sacrifices of animals that covered the sin so you could have a limited access to God. Jesus died shedding blood that was innocent so that you could have unfettered access to God. So listen to what it says in Hebrews about the veil. The, um, the temple still stood when the book of Hebrews was written. And the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who it is, is upset that there are Christians who were Jewish that are going back to the temple. Judaism was a sanctioned religion by the Romans, which meant that they could go about their business and they were free from emperor worship, which everybody in the Roman Empire had to put the incense into the little stand and give their allegiance to Caesar. Christians would not do this and would avoid it. And so that caused them problems. And so now when they had left Judaism and gone to Christianity, they now were in an unsanctioned religion. And so they were beginning to go back into Judaism, which meant that they were giving sacrifices, that they had a high priest who was a man, that they were going back into something that God would take care of when the temple's destroyed. Now no one would be tempted to go back. And that happens in 40 years after the death of Christ. But this is in between it. And so the writer of the Hebrews writes this about the veil. He says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You don't need to go to the temple and have a priest take blood back of a sacrifice for you because we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. What was the way that the high priest would make his way into the holiest holies? He would go through the veil this four inches wide, maybe eight inches wide, uh, uh, 15 feet wide, eight inches thick, 48 inches thick, 15 feet wide, 30 feet tall, and you would move that veil and go behind it on the day that he would enter in. However, Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. So Jesus becomes the veil by which we enter into the presence of God. And this veil is torn at his death to speak of the access that we now have to God. And later on in Hebrews, he says this, now we have boldness to go to the throne of God to get grace in a time of need, <clears throat> which is a pretty amazing statement. The throne of God, that we can approach it that he rules the universe from, that he, that he rules over the nations of men. And we have access to that throne through prayer. And um, it's amazing that when we are in need, and most of our po most powerful needs have to do with our family, doesn't it? Uh, we, we parents pray for you kids a lot, even you adult kids, you need to know that. We pray for you a lot. You're a lot harder to deal with as adults than you are with, I'd rather have a baby than an adult child. 
I'm kidding. Kind of. <laughs> but we have access for grace, undeserved favor by the throne, and that veil being torn spoke of that. Now, the next thing that happened was an earthquake. And there's a reason why there's an earthquake, because it's signifying something. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I do want to talk about scholars again. Um, and this is my pet peeve for this sermon, all right? I seem to have one every message. My pet peeve is that scholars will often say, uh, we know there wasn't an earthquake in the early 30s in Israel. What they should say is there is no evidence of an earthquake in Jerusalem in the, in the early 30s. That's what they should say. But they can't help themselves to attack the Bible, especially if they are a non-Christian scholar, by saying, once again, the Bible's wrong because we know there wasn't an earthquake there. Really? You as a scholar found evidence that there was not an earthquake in the early 30s. Well, shockingly, in 2012, they discovered evidence that there was an earthquake in the early 30s in Jerusalem. This is why they should just, I'm not telling, this is, this is advice for scholars, okay? <laughs> And I don't know why scholars would want to listen to some pastor of a church, all right? Uh, this is advice from a pastor to scholars. You don't have to not talk about it, but instead just say there's no evidence. That just makes it clear. There's no evidence because not even scholars know what they don't know. I don't know what I don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And scholars don't know what they don't know. And when all of a sudden there's evidence that there was an earthquake in Jerusalem in the time the Bible says that there was an earthquake, or at least around that time, well, then all of a sudden, your scoffing of the Bible begins to look petty. And it's amazing how often this happens. They'll say something about something, something about the Bible. I remember them saying that the Ishmaelites that took Joseph into slavery didn't have camels. You can't trust the Bible because the Israelites, because the Ishmaelites didn't have camels. You're telling me, you know, 3,500 years ago that a certain group, uh, the Ishmaelites, never had camels? You, you know that for sure? When 1% of archaeology has been discovered, and then a few years later they came and they found a discovery and they found that Ishmaelites had camels. After making a big deal about how the Bible was inaccurate because it said that. So th this is just my pet peeve and I'm done with that now. I'm going to be quiet about that now. Let's talk about the significance of this earthquake. The um, when the law was given, it was given on Mount Sinai. There was lightning and thunder up on top of this mountain and the whole mountain quaked when God gave them the first covenant, the covenant of the law. Jesus said in the Last Supper, when he gave the cup of the covenant, take this, this is my blood, the cup of my covenant given to you. So now we are under a new covenant you and I, praise God, are not under the old covenant, the law. Galatians, Hebrews, make, Romans all make it clear that the law is completed. It revealed sin in our lives, but it couldn't help us. But Jesus helps us to the uttermost. And so that was completed and was replaced by the new covenant of his blood, the covenant of grace. And so that there would be an earthquake when he dies on the cross, doesn't surprise us. There was an earthquake when the first covenant was given. Now there's one when uh, Jesus himself has this new covenant that we're under. Matthew 24, 51, let me read you the earthquake here. It says, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom 
and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Then in Exodus 19.11, this is Mount Sinai when the law was given. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And the Bible tells us that all of Israel feared greatly when the law was given. It seems like the earthquake on Mount Sinai was an earthquake of dread and the earthquake around the cross was an earthquake of awe because of what happens to the Roman soldiers when they see him die and feel the earthquake. And suddenly they glorify God. The centurion glorified God. Now, the next thing that happens is that the graves are opened. As this earthquake took place, graves opened up. Now, saints that have passed away are going to be seen in Jerusalem, but not at this time. This is often misread. So people will ask me, why does the Bible say that saints that had died were walking around Jerusalem when Jesus died on the cross? And I always say, it didn't happen. And they go, yeah, it did. I know it didn't. I'm just messing with them a little bit. It happened three days later. When he rose from the dead, there were saints that had died that were seen in Jerusalem. That makes a lot more sense because he's the first fruits of rising from the dead, right? And we'll talk about them. I don't want to get too much into it. But why would the graves be split open when Jesus died on the cross? Because his death was the price paid so you and I will not remain in the grave. In the Old Testament, God talks smack to the grave. Listen to what it says. Um, um, we, we read here already. Um, well, let me read this to you. Matthew 27, 52 and 53. This is right after the earthquake. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the grave after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, Hosea 13, 14 is where God is talking smack to the grave. And I love it. It says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. The word ransom means to purchase. So Jesus' death, the shedding of his blood and his death ransomed you from the power of the grave. You will not be in your grave forever. I already have a grave. And if the Lord tarries, I'll be put in that grave. But that will not be where I will remain forever. And, and do you know that when we, when we bury Christians, we bury them where their, their face is facing east? as a reference to the return of Jesus Christ coming from the east. And, and the grave will one day give up the dead that are in it. So he says, I will ransom you from the grave. Um, and let's see where I'm going to get to the right place here. I will ransom you from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. So redeem again is to, to, to buy back. I will redeem them from death. I will be your plagues, O grave. He literally says to the grave, I'm going to be a plague to you. And he says, I will uh, be your destruction. Pity is hidden from your eyes. There will be a time that there will no longer be a need for graves because we will be resurrected. Those who have trusted in him will live forever. So it makes sense that around the cross, the graves were split open. Now let's talk about these saints that were seen. They, again, they weren't zombies walking around. They're like, oh, 
you know. Aunt Mary, I can't believe, you know, why are you walking around looking like you want to eat somebody? Somehow they, they knew who they were and they had bodies, which is interesting to me. It says in Matthew 27, 52, and I just read this, um, the graves were open and many bodies of the saints were seen that had fallen asleep. That fallen asleep, of course, means to die. Uh, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. So people that had died after Jesus rose from the dead, they, they were seen inside of Jerusalem. Now, there's something that theologians call the intermediate state. We know that after the resurrection, we're going to have glorified bodies. This corruptible will put on incorruptible. This mortal will put on immortality. But if you die today, what will you be like? We know we'll be in the presence of God. The Bible says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. But what are you going to be like from the moment that you die and in the presence of God? Are you going to be a spirit floating around or will you have a body? And I think this gives us somewhat of an answer along with some other things. In the, in the tribulation period in Revelation, we see the saints that stood against the Antichrist and his number and the, the beast they wanted to worship uh, and they, they had died from that. They wouldn't take the number, so they died. Standing on the sea of glass, it must mean they have a body if they're standing on the sea of glass and they're not resurrected yet. Here they have a body. It's not their glorified body, but they have a body that is seen. Now, first of all, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So these people that now are resurrected can't, can't be resurrected until after Jesus does. And they're not resurrected in the sense of having their glorified body. Let me read you 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 22. It says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For all, for as in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So God allowed these saints who were now being taken from Sheol, and I don't have enough time to really go in to where people were before Jesus died on the cross. We'll do it at another time. But they were taken from this mysterious place of Sheol, which in the Old Testament talks about the grave, but also references the place of the dead. The context helps you understand that. And they are transferred into heaven where Jesus takes a host that he ascends into heaven. And it seems that on the way, some of them stop by Jerusalem to walk around and freak people out. <laughs> but it doesn't surprise us because this is after the resurrection of Christ. And there are some people that are dead in Christ that come back into Jerusalem. Now, the sixth thing that we see is that scripture is fulfilled. And there are so many of these. And some of them are prophecies. And some of these are just statements that we see clearly connected to Jesus. And it is interesting to go back and study each one of them and see why God would have a statement that Jesus fulfilled. Uh, we saw in Psalms 22 that they divided his garments and gambled for his clothes. And that's said in Psalms 22. In Zechariah 12, 10, there's an interesting prophecy. God says he's going to pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem. And they will mourn for me as one who mourns for an only son whom they pierced in Jerusalem. Now it's God speaking. Now the time's coming when the nation of Israel 
is going to accept Jesus as their Messiah. If you know Jewish people and their stance against that, you know that something amazing is going to happen. And this is told to us in Romans chapter 11, I think it's 25 and 26. It says blindness in part has happened to Israel. Why in part? Because we know people from Israel who have gotten saved. You may be here today, maybe Jewish, and you're saved. So blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and then all of Israel will be saved. So Zechariah says, God's gonna pour a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem and they'll mourn for me when they look upon who they pierced. Now, when John, in the book of John, John says they took a spear and they stabbed it into his side to make sure he was dead and blood and water came out while he was on the cross. And then John writes, this was to fulfill that, they, that he would be pierced in Jerusalem. And so it's, fulfill, it's a fulfilling of that scripture. They gave him gall and wine to drink or, or wine mixed with gall to drink is in the book of Psalms. That was the anesthesia that he refused. Um, he was with the rich in his death. Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. He was supported. This is interesting. Do you know this? Jesus was supported by a group of women that followed the disciples around, wealthy women who provided for their needs. I just find that so interesting. But when he died, a rich man who was part of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, asked for the body of Jesus, prepared it, and buried him in his tomb. So he was literally buried in a rich man's tomb, and it said he would be with the rich in his death. The Old Testament said darkness would cover, or it would be on the cross. Uh, the Old Testament says that Jesus would be mocked by the people around the cross, and the exact wording is used. It says in the Old Testament, he saved others, let him save himself. The exact things that the New Testament says they said were said in the Old Testament. Now, all of these things help us to understand that God knew it all was going to happen. This isn't a tragic death of Jesus. This is a sacrifice of, of, of bravery for us. Someone who died for us, demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. The final statement that we have is that surprising, or the, the, the final kind of amazing thing that happened around the cross is that surprising statements were made. We've read already um, what one of them was, and that's the centurion glorifying God and saying, truly, this was a righteous man, his way of saying this man was innocent. But Matthew 27, 54 adds something else. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly. So now you have the soldiers that are with the centurion when they saw all that feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. This is not just what the centurion said. Certainly this was a righteous man, but truly this was the son of God. And this might shock you, but there is a movie on the life of Jesus that got this wrong. And the reason I say that it would shock you is because these movies on the life of Jesus and shows get so many things wrong, it absolutely drives me crazy. As a pastor that has spent so much time in, in the New Testament, life of Jesus, I can't watch them. I end up walking away. I just like, I can't take it. I can't, they just, just do it correctly. Why change things? So in the greatest story ever told, it had to be a movie that was made in the 60s, I think. John Wayne played the, the centurion that said, in, in the movie, he, he didn't say what the centurion said, 
was certainly this was a righteous man. Instead, in the movie, he says, truly, this was the son of God. So he says what they say. So they got it wrong. But at least John Wayne got to play the part of that centurion with his very cowboy draw taking place. The other amazing statement on the cross is the thief that is crucified that at one point mocked him and then finally said, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? All of a sudden, there was this realization that he is a king. He has a kingdom. Just like the soldiers glorified God and suddenly realized he was righteous, the thief on the cross said, he, we deserve this, but, but he is innocent. He saw the innocence and he asked that he could be in the kingdom of God. And I love that Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He calls eternity paradise. What an amazing thing. Now, three things in closing. Number one, uh, we have been translated from darkness into light. Jesus experienced that darkness, but we are now in the light and we see things clearly and we are the light of the world. Number two, God is a plague to death. I just wanted to bring that up again because I think it's awesome. God is a plague to death and the grave and, and is going to destroy them both. And it did it while he was on the cross. And finally, the veil in the temple was torn to represent there was no more separation. And we now have a new living way, Christ, the veil in the flesh. We make our way to God through Jesus. And if you have never given your life to Christ, or if you followed him for a while, but you are no longer following him, make it right now so that you can have that access through the living way to God, to that throne that we talked about earlier. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that we are able to gather together here to worship you, uh, to look at your word, and to see these amazing things that happened around the cross. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to us. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.